Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the former director of the U.S. Federal Reserve Division of International Finance. Having spent over 32 years at the Fed, he also served as a visiting economist at BIS, a senior economist for the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and a consultant for the World Bank. Holding a PhD in economics from MIT, he's represented the Fed before international groups such as the G7, the G20, and the Bank for International Settlements, and is now a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. It's my great honor to welcome to the show, Dr. Stephen Kamen. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Adi. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background at the Fed and the White House. Well, I'm, um, so I'm Steve Kamen, as you've said, and you've pretty much covered my, uh, you know, kind of like the highlights of my career. I, um, I, my, let me just say, I, my long career in international economics might go have its roots all the way back in growing up as a child in uh, Honduras and Ecuador and then Hawaii and then California. My father worked for a fruit company. And so I've had a longstanding interest, uh, both in kind of like international developments in general and uh, in Latin America in particular. And so I studied history and economics uh, as a college student at University of California, Berkeley. And, uh, you know, then spent a couple of years as a research assistant uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Went to graduate school at MIT, in the middle of which I took some time off and worked at the World Bank. Uh, finished up my PhD and started in the International Finance Division of the Federal Reserve in 1987, where I started off uh, following uh, Peru, Colombia, and Ecuador, their kind of international developments, and ended up uh, 30 years later uh, covering the entire world. I retired uh, in the spring of 2020, and since then I've been uh, enjoying a life of research and fewer deadlines as a senior fellow in the American uh, uh, Enterprise Institute. All right. Well, that's that's really interesting. Um, it's it's really fascinating to see someone who's worked their entire career uh, at the Fed. Um, so I wanted to start off today by asking you about the debt ceiling, which has been uh, in the news this week after it hit an astounding $30 trillion, which is well over 100% of GDP. There's been much talk about default and insolvency, but with many more multi-trillion dollar bills being in Congress, economists remain divided. So you yourself have cited Japan, which has a debt to GDP ratio of over 250% as an example of how the United States has a long way to go before hitting the fiscal wall. So I wanted to get your opinion on whether the current levels of debt are really something to be concerned about and how long we can sustain current levels of spending before it's no longer manageable. Well, um, let me say that economists uh, are likely to be divided on uh, on whether or not the current level or some close to current level of debt of the United States government is sustainable. Um, I don't know, but it's hard for me to believe uh, that economists are divided on the issue of whether we should have a debt ceiling. And the answer to that is clearly no, we should not have a debt ceiling. Almost no other country in the world has a debt ceiling. Our debt our debt reflects uh, expenditures we've already made and uh, and money we've already borrowed and uh, are obligated to repay. And the standing of U.S. financial markets and the dollar rests very solidly on an ironclad promise to repay those debts, which would be could be disrupted uh, if a if the debt ceiling were not allowed to to be raised. So we definitely don't need a debt ceiling, and I would support efforts to 
basically get rid of that aspect of our fiscal laws. On the other issue of how sustainable uh, our debt is, um, well, I think as you as you mentioned, the example of Japan suggests that we have a long way to go uh, before we hit levels of debt that are so high that people become worried uh, about our ability and willingness to repay them. All that said, um, people's perceptions of our creditworthiness depend a lot on our policy actions. And if we, uh, you know, if we basically pursue a policy of fiscal recklessness, where you know, where we, where both we show a disinclination to close our fiscal deficits and this inclination to repay our debts, uh, then that's going to alter people's perceptions of our creditworthiness, and that could substantially lower the sustainable uh, level of our debt. Do you think that's a risk at the moment um, that that at some time in the future, given the current um, high levels of spending, that the U.S.'s perception of credit worthiness goes down? Um, I don't think it's a particularly prominent risk at the moment. We come close to it every time we come, you know, we have one of our debt ceiling debacles where it becomes a political football. Um, it is true that, you know, our credit rating, you know, was lowered. Uh, you know, about 10 years ago, after one of those debt ceiling debacles. Uh, more recently, as we've had those types of, you know, debacles like earlier last year, financial markets uh, seem to take them in stride, knowing that eventually we'll do a deal. But, but you know, if we continue on this path, uh, I think there's more of a chance uh, that people's perception of our creditworthiness will decline. Right. Um, but just politics, politics aside, just looking at it from a purely economic standpoint, um, if um, if if interest rates do remain low or at near zero rates, then you're saying that even if um, the, the debt continues to rise and we do have high levels of spending um, well beyond uh, federal revenue, as we've had in the past, it's still not an issue that, that Americans have to be worried about. Um, uh, I know if anybody's been reading the news this week, it's, it's been all over the place that there's a 30 trillion dollar national debt and every every outlet seems to be warning people of some sort of impending disaster so is is that really not the case well um well it's well um let's parse a few things first of all well certainly if interest rates were to remain at current super low levels okay then even as our debt continued to mount okay our debt service payments by the federal government, which is what really matters, would continue to be very low and would probably not threaten our creditworthiness. However, I think, you know, few people expect interest rates, both short-term and long-term, to remain as low as they currently are. So almost certainly there's going to be some rise in interest rates over time, and that will make it more difficult, uh, you know, more costly uh, in terms of debt service payments than they were. And that combined with continued high fiscal deficits would eventually lead to the debt rising to levels that the market considered to be unsustainable. So probably for the next few years, under most interest rate scenarios, no, the prospect of hitting the fiscal wall, i.e. a debt crisis, would seem pretty low. 
But, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that economists really have no idea, you know, what the sustainable level of the debt is. And just because Japan has a much higher level of debt than the United States doesn't necessarily mean that we could run Japan's level of debt sustainably. So, so that's so. So, why I'm not particularly worried uh, about a debt crisis in the next few years, I think it makes all the sense in the world to start getting our fiscal house in order uh, through a combination of rationalizing spending where it needs to be rationalized and uh, rationalizing taxes, which basically means raising them. Right. Um, and I think that's that's really uh, something I wanted to touch on as well, um, that just because Japan has managed to hit 250% and remain stable, it doesn't mean everywhere else in the world can. Um, for example, Greece, a couple of years back, had a debt to GDP ratio very similar to what the United States is now. And I mean, they, they went insolvent. So what was what was different in that scenario? Well, I mean, I mean, so um, I mean, what's different is that, uh, you know, Japan, uh, you know, has I won't say a thriving economy because it's actually been somewhat more abundant in terms of growth. But let's just say it's got a solid economy uh, with a real, you know, a relatively affluent population. And uh, and there's not much question, I think. Uh, that if uh, Japan needed to raise taxes and revenues in order to repay its debt, it could. Another factor that's very important is, is Japan is a high saving economy and a lot of its um, a lot of its debt is to its own citizens who are less likely to flee, you know, with their wealth into other countries, uh, you know, in the event of debt difficulties. Greece is pretty much the opposite in all those regards. It had no proven record of fiscal sustainability. It had, you know, serious uh, structural problems in the economy. Its debt was, uh, you know, fully owed, you know, largely owed uh, to folks outside of Greece and owed in a currency that Greece did not control, the euro. Going back to Japan, you know, a lot of the Japanese uh, liabilities are in yen. So if worse comes to worse, uh, Japan can always print more yen in order to repay its debts. That was not an option in Greece. And that's where it ran into problems. And, and not because once um, once it couldn't repay its debt in euros, then all the bank, all the banks that had lent money to the Greek government also ran into problems and then actually ran into problems, you know, getting lender of last resort uh, functions uh, from the European Central Bank. So that's another that's a huge factor, by the way, that's in the U.S. favor. Since the dollar is the world's international reserve currency, uh, there's a natural desire on the part of countries around the world to hold our liabilities and uh, and they're less likely to flee into other reserve assets, uh, you know, indications of diminished creditworthiness on our part. All right. Um, well, next, I wanted to talk to you a bit about inflation. So prices for virtually everything from gas to groceries to cars have exploded. And there's been much debate about whether or not the inflation that we're seeing is transitory. So as someone who's worked at the highest level of the Fed for several decades, I wanted to ask how bad the situation really is, as well as what the appropriate action for Congress and the Fed should be. Um. <laughs> Well, let me put this, I, you know, being outside the Fed, you know, I don't I don't know more than you do or lots of people do about what's going on in the Fed anymore. I mean, I have lots of friends there, but we 
you know, I, I don't uh, press them for the uh, inner workings uh, and machinations of the folks there. But uh, but by and large, um, well, a couple of points. Uh, first, um, it seems plausible, uh, you know, that inflation will decline this year as a lot of the supply, dis- as on the one side, a lot of the supply disruptions um, you know, that have boosted prices over the course of 2021 start to ease, you know, as supply chains are rebuilt, as the supply chains catch up with demand, and as more uh, employees enter the labor force. I would note that today the um, employment report for January came out and it showed a very felicitous small increase in labor force participation, which is always a good thing as well as a whopping increase in actual employment. So I think there are some good reasons uh, why um, uh, inflation should decline over the course of this year. Uh, by how much, uh, I certainly uh, don't know, and I don't believe that anybody actually knows. Uh, it may well decline by less uh, than the Fed predicted uh, in their December forecast. That's quite possible. Uh, but it will probably decline from current high levels. Now, as far as what the Fed should do about that, um, I think that the path that it's on is basically appropriate. Um, number one, it was good uh, that they acknowledged that inflation uh, was becoming such a problem that they had to react by tightening monetary policy more rapidly than they predicted earlier last year. And so the plan, the the uh, the the plans uh, to basically stop asset purchases in March, and the uh, you know near you know unspoken but but quite credible uh, you know idea that they will start raising rates in March also seems appropriate. In the December uh, forecast, they uh, you know the members of the FOMC anticipated three rate rate hikes this year. And nobody would be surprised if it was more like four or five rate hikes. Uh, That seems appropriate. There are some people who believe that that's still not fast enough. Um, You know, there was an article by Larry Summers in the Washington Post this morning uh, to that effect. And that could well be true, because if you look at the trajectory of nominal interest rates uh, that was predicted, um, you know, by the Fed, uh, in, December, in, in December, they actually had the federal funds rate not getting up to 2.1% until the end of 2024, which was, which was still below both the Fed's estimate of the kind of like the long-term equilibrium interest rate of 2.5% and below inflation you know, that they had predicted every year subsequently. So arguably... Um, you know, negative real interest rates uh, are not high enough uh, to pose the appropriate restraint uh, on demand and inflation. And maybe the Fed will need to move faster. Uh, But it's made a good down payment on kind of like what some people are calling a hawkish pivot toward tighter policy. And it can always strengthen that commitment down the road. 
So there's definitely been much talk about the Fed starting to raise interest rates extremely soon as unemployment hits record lows and the pressing worker shortage continues. So um, from what I've seen, this issue isn't only U.S. specific, with many central banks around the world um, raising interest rates in an attempt to cool down the economy. So, Dr. Kamen, with what we've seen um, around the world from central banks in the past few months, um, do you believe it's the right time for the Fed to start hiking interest rates? And what, what might be some other unintended consequences of doing so? Well, yeah, well, as I've kind of suggested, yes, it's absolutely the right time for the Fed to start raising interest rates. I think there's a little bit of a question about um, about how effective uh, raising interest rates can be in restraining inflation if the cause of that inflation is more coming from supply side disruptions uh, than excessive demand. Um, so there's some question about that. But the fact is, is that with interest rates near zero and the economy basically at or very close to full employment, there's no reason not to start raising interest rates uh, from the from a macroeconomic standpoint. And there's every reason to raise to start raising interest rates from a financial stability uh, perspective, which is you know that a lot of our assets uh, like stocks uh, and uh, real estate are highly valued or overvalued these days. And continued very low interest rates uh, would only exacerbate uh, those stretch valuations. Uh, so for lots of reasons, now is a very good time uh, to start raising interest rates. Some people, I think like Larry Summers, thinks that they should have started raising rates earlier. Uh, that could be, uh, but I don't know that a few months, one way or another, makes that much difference. So absolutely, countries around the world starting to tighten and undoubtedly time for the Fed to do so as well. Yeah, and so I've spoken to a couple other economists who, who seem almost quite angry at the fact that the, the Fed is still targeting inflation, specifically for the reason that you mentioned, that it doesn't discriminate between supply and demand shocks. Um, so do you think that the, the Fed targeting inflation is, is really the, the right metric, or should they be looking at some combination of other, other indicators, um, just because the inflation in this case might be caused by supply shocks? Well, um, well, first, just to kind of like clarify, the Fed has what are, what's known as a dual mandate. So it has two things that it's supposed to target. One of them is inflation, supposed to keep it low and stable. And the other is maximum sustainable employment. So it's got two of those and uh, and it needs to continue to strive to hit both of those. So in situations where um, where a supply shock has pushed inflation above its target level of 2%, but that supply shock is likely to wane and inflation is supposed to fall back toward 2%. Uh, it is good central bank practice to kind of like let that happen without kind of like pushing on the monetary brakes. Okay. Now, now when that happens, we don't describe that as the Fed ignoring or putting aside the inflation target. We think of it more as the target as a medium and long-term goal still, you know, is still important, but, but we recognize that there are transitory influences uh, on the, um, you know, on inflation that the, that the central bank should, as the expression goes, see through. Now, now the, uh, 
the um, the fact that a lot of the inflation we observed last year appeared to be due to the supply chain disruptions was one of the reasons why the Fed spent much of last year or most of last year arguing that it should see through that that those uh, transitory spikes in inflation because they were going to go away and it didn't need to slow the whole economy uh, in order to basically bring inflation back down again. What happened by the end of last year was it was apparent. Uh, that the inflation was getting way higher than anybody expected, that, and that it was lasting longer than anyone expected. And finally, that most likely a lot of that higher inflation was due to rapidly expanding demand as well as laggard supply. So for all those reasons, it made perfect sense to stop waiting you know, for inflation to go back down by itself and to start raising rates. And uh, and um, the um, in terms of why it would do that, the reason is not only to hasten a decline in inflation back to target, but it's also because of the main fear that the Fed and other economists have, which is that the current spike in inflation will then lead to much longer lasting increases in inflation expectation. So that it'll so that that will turn a temporary surge in inflation into a much longer lasting inflation problem that nobody wants. So it's it's the desire to keep current high inflation from bleeding into longer term inflation expectations that's really behind the Fed's desire to kind of uh, to choke inflation off now uh, by raising rates. Right. Um... And so is it just, um, sorry, is it just interest rates or um, are, are there other actions that the Fed should be taking at the moment as well? Um, for example, open market operations or, or any other action that they're already taking that maybe um, the public isn't that aware about? Well, there's two basic tools here. Uh, one of them is it's control of the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate, you know, in the short term money market that bank that banks borrow and lend to with each other. And that is the and that Fed funds rate is what everyone expects the Fed to, to increase, starting with their March FOMC meeting. The other tool is to reverse the asset purchases, which is basically also called quantitative easing, uh, that the Fed uh, has been doing in a very big way since the pandemic started. Okay, So the intention there is to stop the asset purchases by March. And then sometime in the future, uh, and the Fed won't say when, but it's kind of suggested it'll be in the nearer rather than farther future to actually start um, letting those bonds mature and not roll them over so that the amount of bonds uh, that the Fed has purchased and is on its balance sheet starts to decline over time. And the idea there is, is that by basically, you know, pushing those bonds back into the hands of the private sector, that will be a factor kind of like raising longer term interest rates, even as the Fed is via the Fed funds rate, raising short term interest rates. So, so both of those things, both rate hikes and, uh, and reducing its balance, the size of the assets on its balance sheet should contribute to higher interest rates and some you know, financial tightening. 
Right. Um, and so finally, I wanted to ask you about economic growth or prospects for it over the next year. So despite a slew of um, economic issues, GDP growth has been extremely strong um, over the past few months and forecasts remain highly optimistic. So with most new bills stalled in Congress and an election coming up, um, it appears as though fiscal policy will remain mostly unchanged over the next year. So to close off, I just wanted to ask you what Americans can expect to see um, economic growth look like over the year to come and how this might be affected by the new Omicron variant? Well, um, well, let me just say, I mean, I think the, the American economy has shown a great deal of resilience in the face of these shocks. It's been helped by very accommodative fiscal policy. Okay. Those stimulus checks to everybody, et cetera, it's, you know, huge transfers to the states, et cetera, et cetera have certainly helped, uh, you know, to power the uh, recovery. And, um, you know, I would expect that, uh, you know, I, I would expect growth to slow uh, from its high pace of 2022, just as all forecasters will, uh, but to still stay relatively strong. Um, you know, the Fed has either recovered or come near to the level of GDP predicted by its previous pre-pandemic trend. And so that's a very positive factor. Uh, as far as the Omicron virus goes, um, first, I hope that should be going away soon. I'm going to be traveling next month and I don't want that to interfere. Uh, but, you know, all the data suggests that that the uh, cases are plunging almost as quickly as they rose. More to the point, I mentioned earlier the, uh, the employment report for January. So January, of course, was the high point of the Omicron virus with a huge number of cases, not so many deaths. And so it was amazing uh, that there were more than 400,000 new jobs created last month, if I read the uh, report correctly. So, so I, don't, I don't anticipate uh, Omicron to get in the way of our growth this coming year. Um, what could get in the way is something that a lot of people are worried about which is that increases in interest rates uh, could basically prick bubbles uh, in, the, uh, you know, in the stock market, in the bond market, in the real estate market, and lead to you know, big declines in asset prices uh, and possibly you know, problems with debt repayment and default that, you know, that could basically restrain the economy a lot or maybe even push it into recession. Um, that's, that's not my modal expectation, uh, but it's something that people do worry about. Right. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kamen. It's, it's been a real pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.